This is The Josh Hammer Show. Look, I get it. You're probably tired of the news out of the Middle East. There's so much going on here on the domestic home front. The news cycle has never been crazier. But the war in the Middle East and the war in Gaza in particular, it's not going anywhere. We had dead American soldiers at Tower 22 in Jordan, the military base, just a few weeks ago. America's involvement in the region, it's not going anywhere. You can try to duck your head in the sand if you want to, but ultimately, if you choose not to care about what is happening there, that is your own shortcoming. We're bringing on today a very special guest, someone who is uniquely qualified to talk about what has been happening there in the region since October 7th. We're bringing on the son of Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. That is Yair Netanyahu. He is speaking to American media on our program for the very first time since October 7th, 2023. We're going to talk not just about the conflict in Gaza, but the global uproar that has been sweeping the entire world since then. In the cities of Europe, and the cities of North America, the rise of this uniquely virulent strand of woke-addled Jew hatred, the likes of which we have not seen in decades. We're going to talk about whether liberals, Jewish liberals, and non-Jewish liberals, have they learned their lessons about the pitfalls of the woke ideology, about intersectionality and DEI. We all remember the university presidents, they are testifying in Congress in early December. Has anyone learned their lesson yet? We're going to go deep on the history of the region. We're going to expose the fiction of the idea of, quote unquote, Palestine being an Arab or an independent Muslim country. All of this is nonsensical. Yeah, you're as well equipped to discuss it. So we're going to take a very quick commercial break here. Stay with us. We'll be right back with our special guest, Yair Netanyahu, the son of the prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. joined by a very special guest this week. He is an Israeli activist and the son of the current Prime Minister of Israel. That would be Yair Netanyahu. Yair, thank you so much for joining the Josh Hammer Show. Thank you, Josh, for having me. You bet. So it's been four months now since October 7, 2023, a day that will live in infamy for the Jewish people. Frankly, a day that will live in infamy, I would argue, for Western civilization as a whole. What has surprised you? in the aftermath of October 7th? Has, has there, have there been any specific trend lines, whether it's public opinion, whether it's governments who have been stronger or softer when it comes to this conflict that you might support? What, what has your initial shock value been when it comes to the fallout of October 7th and the war that is now going on? Well, I think my biggest shock is, you know, the Jewish people in Israel has been through the, you know, the 
most horrible massacre of Jews since the, you know, since uh, the Holocaust. It's been Israel's version for 9-11. And although less people died, uh, 1,500 people were murdered at that day, but our population is only 9 million, while America's is 300 million. So proportionally, it's like, I think 30,000 people would have been killed in on uh, 9-11. And, you know, the terrorists didn't hide what they're doing. They were wearing GoPro on their, for, on their forehead and broadcasting live the massacre, the mass raping, the mass torturing of children and babies and women and, you know, all live to see. So it's not like, you know, I don't understand how could there be narratives that this is not what happened. Well, they were brought, they were very proud of what they were doing. And the result of this biggest massacre of Jews in recent history is a huge wave of anti-Semitism. Instead of, you know, after 9-11, the whole world united, rightfully so, uh, with the United States and supported the United States. And, you know, a huge wave of empathy was rightfully been across the world for the United States and huge support for the United States, including when the United States retaliated 9-11 and went to the other side of the world, to Afghanistan, to bring down the government of the Taliban that was hosting the 9-11, uh, you know, Al-Qaeda terrorist. So, you know, and and I don't, and I don't, not only that it's not happening with Israel, it's the opposite happening. It's the biggest wave of anti-Semitism, I think, since the 1940s, in, especially in, in the West. And it's shocking, especially it's shocking when it's happening in the United States. I think it's the worst wave of anti-Semitism ever occurred in the history of the United States. And we're living in a time that everything is, it's, you know, you know, you're supposed to be like, everything is racially, everything is racist and you need to be very careful and everything is very racist. And, and, uh, but there is one form of racism that is completely acceptable in today's woke progressive world. And, in America, which is anti-Semitism, you know, calling for the genocide of a whole nation is acceptable, apparently, in the United States top universities, as we saw in the hearing in Congress. And, um, and, uh, and it's shocking, and it's shocking that, well, for me, it's not shocking that the, this wave of anti-Semitism come from mostly from the camp that says that they are fighting against racism and against discrimination of minorities. And I think there's not a, you know, Jews are less than 2% of the population of the United States. That's a, that's a real minority. I think it was Ben Shapiro who was doing a media hit a decade ago. And if I have the quote correctly, I remember Ben saying that Jew hatred is the last politically correct form of bigotry that exists in America. And it's true. It is absolutely true. I mean, you might argue that anti-Christian animus, anti-Christian animus is definitely vogue. It is popular these days, equally disgusting, I would say. But it really is true that Jew hatred is by far the most politically popular, not just politically acceptable, but politically popular form of bigotry. You know, that kind of gets us, and you're, you were touching on this, it kind of gets us to this whole idea of intersectionality and DEI, diversity, equity, inclusion. You mentioned the, the, the university professor's testimonies, Harvard, Penn, these so-called elite institutions, which are very much ground zero when it comes to the fight against DEI and wokeism and intersectionality. Do you think that Jews 
get it at this point when it was especially in america and throughout the west when it comes to the idea that that this whole ideology that is essentially ranking hierarchies of victimhood hierarchies of oppression do you think they get it that when it comes to the jews even though historically we are the most oppressed people of all time do you think they understand that according to this ideology that we're not that we are oppressors i sure hope so i mean i hear more and more stories of liberal jews uh jews in the united states that describe themselves as progressives and woke that march, you know, with Black Lives Matters and march with all of these people. And now they see their friends that they marched with and they supported their struggles, not only not supporting their struggle, but calling for their annihilation and for their murder. <laughs> people that they thought that they are on the same side, that they're in the same camp, that they are friends, that they are, you know, and uh, they turn out to be not so friendly and I hope the reassessment who are the friends of the Jewish people and who are not. So uh, let, let's transition a little bit here. Uh, I don't want to get too in the weeds when it comes to the Biden administration's foreign policy, but but certainly I think it's it's fair and reasonable at a time like this to compare the Biden administration's foreign policy with the Trump administration's foreign policy. Now, uh, under the Trump administration, you had relative stability in the Middle East, which is obviously an incredibly volatile region historically. You had this landmark historic achievement, the Abraham Accords, where Israel achieved four separate peace agreements, the first with the Arab countries since the 1990s when it was with Jordan. Just unbelievable stuff. How do you assess the differences between the Trump administration's approach to the region versus the Biden administration's approach? And what, what, from your perspective, has gone so wrong when it comes to America's involvement or lack thereof in the Middle East? The source of all chaos in the Middle East and violence and terrorism is Iran. Uh, this war is not Israel-Gaza war. It's Israel-Iran war. And Iran is Gaza and Hamas. The terror organization of Hamas is one proxy of Iran. Hezbollah in Lebanon is another proxy. The Houthis in Yemen that are disrupting the whole international maritime trade is another proxy. And when, you know, the previous administration was very tough on Iran and understood that Iran is the source of all problems and uh, of the Middle East and terrorism, not only against, and they're an enemy, not only of Israel and the United States, they're calling Israel the small Satan and America the big Satan, and but also most of the Arab countries in the Middle East, they're a tremendous threat for them as well. And the previous administration was very tough on them and put sanctions on them that was very close to uh, crippling their, you know, their, their economy and, and collapsing their economy. And, and uh, they, they changed course. They were scared. They were afraid of the United States. And they kept quiet. And when they kept quiet and, you know, being uh, in check, you know, uh, so uh, contained, so Israel, uh, you know, the, into the Middle East flourished and Israel, uh, together with my father and President Trump, made four historical peace treaties between Israel and four Arab Muslim countries, uh, the United uh, Arab Emirates, Bahrain, um, Morocco and Sudan. Um, and we were very close to a peace treaty with Saudi Arabia as well, which is the most important Arab Muslim country in the world. And I think in recent years, there is a different approach of America towards Iran. And I think that is the source of all problems in the Middle East. 
Yeah, 100%. I mean, Iran is the head of the snake, as I think many in the IDF refer to it. I think some in the U.S. understand that Iran is the head of the snake as well, Yair. So, you know, looking at the fallout after October 7th, you've seen some different trends. You know, on the left, you have what some refer to as this red-green alliance between the woke social justice activists, the folks, the same folks who were out there marching for Black Lives Matter in, in 2020. They were out there with the Women's March in 2017. They basically just adopt whatever is the current cause of the day. Now they are out there marching for the so-called Palestinian cause. I, I, on the other hand, you have seen the rise of a segment within the right, within the American right, and, and to an extent, perhaps the global right, that is sounding a, a lot like Charles Lindbergh, a lot like the old kind of 1920s, 1930s era isolationists. And, you know, I, I'm very far from a neoconservative, but I'm also very far from an isolationist. I think that there was a middle ground there. So what, what would be your response to, to, to both of these camps? I mean, both of these camps seem to have some glaring logical fallacies, some, some logical inconsistencies. So why don't you kind of take those one at a time and explain what's wrong with both of those? So regarding the woke progressing camp, it's quite ironic that they're siding now with uh, the Palestinians, you know, uh, I saw a group called Queers for Palestine, which is like (laughs) chickens for Chick-fil-A, right? Yeah, exactly. Chickens for KFC or something like that, because in the Palestinian territories, being gay is punishable by death and they execute it quite often. It's not just theoretically. Uh, Actually, uh, LGBT people from the Palestinian Authority flee to Israel and, uh, and and get a refugee status in Israel because they know that they will be safe in Israel and they'll be killed and murdered and probably beheaded in their hometown in the Palestinian uh, Authority or in uh, Gaza. Uh, women, you know, they, these people claim they support women equality and feminism in the Palestinian territories, in the Palestinian, um, uh, in the West Bank and in Gaza, the woman is officially, according to the law, the position of the men, either her father or her husband. And the man is eligible. There's no problem if a father or if a husband decided to murder his wife or daughter on, you know, basis and uh, it's called family honor killing, you know, because this poor lady was caught holding hands with somebody or talking to some guy or whatever. So, and it's, it's legal. It's almost, you know, women are like a furniture or something for the men, according to law. And of course, all minorities are being persecuted. Christians are being persecuted and ethnically cleansed throughout the Middle East and in the Palestinian Authority in every place except of Israel in the, in the Middle East. Uh, so it's quite ironic. They're signing up with the most not progressive, but regressive, the most middle middle ages, you know, kind of people that want to bring back the world to the time of the middle ages, to the seventh century, where, you know, Sharia law is in charge and women are not allowed to show their hair in public, uh, maybe wear veil, not allowed to show anything besides their their eyes in public. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's quite ironic that they're siding with these people that hate, hate them and hate Christians and hate white people in general and hate, you know, everything. They hate America. They hate, you know, you got a 9-11, uh, when there was 9-11, you, there is a Fox report that you can find it on YouTube that shows the celebrations in the Palestinian Authority. That's right. Of 11, you know, they were celebrating 
and bin Laden is a big hero in the Palestinian Authority. Apparently now in the United States too, in TikTok, you know, with Gen Z, you know, he's a, he's a unpredicted hero in Gen Z, but you know, so that's for that side. While Israel is of course the most, you know, the only democracy in the Middle East, the only liberal country in the Middle East where, you know, gays are, uh, we have a gay uh, um, speaker of the house of, in Israel, we have the biggest gay parade in, in the Middle East. We had a woman prime minister, you know, full woman equality, of course, and etc., uh, uh, etc., et and full minority rights for Muslims, for Christians, uh, for, for everybody. They go all the way to the higher ranks in the government, in parliaments, and and, and the Supreme Court, and everywhere. Um, full civil rights, of course. Okay, so that's regarding the, the Red-Green Alliance. Regarding the new isolationist voices in the conservative side, the United States is the greatest power in the world, the greatest superpower in the world, and the great superpower can walk and chew gum at the same time. We saw with the Trump administration, the border was closed, the southern border was closed. There was hardly any illegal immigrants at the time of the Trump administration, and at the same time, the Trump administration was very actively involved in in foreign affairs, including containing Iran and and uh, and bringing the peace accords together with my father to the Middle East, and doing other stuff, of course, in other regions out of the Middle East. So, so you know, it's 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 not either or. You can do both. Iran already have Israel way inside their range of all of their missiles. But they are building ICBMs, which is intercontinental missiles that can reach to the eastern coast of the United States. It's a fact. They're not hiding it. They're actually bragging about it. And this ICBMs will be able to carry a nuclear weapon. And they're very close uh, to having a nuclear weapon. And the reason they, they don't need this ICBMs to get to Israel. They can get to Israel with their missiles, with their current missiles. They need, they need it in order to get to the eastern coast of the United States. So Iran is a huge, think about ISIS. ISIS was a problem. Everybody understood that ISIS is a problem for America, although it's in the Middle East. Iran has the same ideology of ISIS, but with all tons of oil and on the verge of having a nuclear weapon. So if ISIS, this group of small group relatively of terrorists with sandals and, and you know, uh, Kalachnikovs are a threat to America. So a country with 80 million people with a big chunk of the world oil on the verge of having a nuclear weapon, building intercontinental missiles that can reach to the East Coast, it's definitely a problem to America, not just for Israel. Yeah, 100%. And I'm, I'm so happy that you mentioned the Trump administration's foreign policy as walking and chewing gum at the same time, because as I've, I've explained on this show, I mean, this idea that the Trump administration's foreign policy was this Ron Paul isolationism, it's totally insane. In any event, we need to take it to a quick commercial break here. We're joined by Yair Netanyahu. Stay with us. We'll be right back after the break. This is The Josh Hammer Show. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. 
So the war continues, obviously, in Gaza, and you have seen the the bringing back to the surface of discussions of the so-called peace process with the so-called Palestinians, and you've seen the Biden administration, the the Secretary of State, Tony Blinken, who has leaked to the media that the USA Department is allegedly considering plans to formalize a so-called Palestinian state for the first time in American history. And because of, of all these trends, because of the war, you've now seen a lot of people talking once again about the history of the region, of, of Israel and so-called Palestine. And it, there, there was just so much misinformation on this, year, as you know perhaps better than anyone. I, I've explained it on this show before about how the PLO was basically created in the 1960s as a Soviet Kremlin psychological warfare operation. They literally recruited Yasser Arafat out of exile in Tunisia, brought, brought him back to Ramallah. I mean, the, the whole thing is just totally upside down insane. You wrote a great piece for Newsweek back in October 2022, why the Jewish people are the rightful owners of the land of Israel, really going deep on the history of the region and just disproving this lie, this lie about how 1948 was a so-called Nakba, about how the Arabs are the indigenous people to the land there. Why don't you start to walk us through some of what he wrote in that piece? Because that history, frankly, has never been more important than it is right now, while the United States is not so subtly flirting with the idea of a so-called Palestinian state. Right. So, by the way, you mentioned the PLO and their creation by the Soviets in the 1960s. So that's very interesting because the Palestine, Palestine Liberation Organization, or the PLO, was created in 1964. Israel took control of the West Bank, what you know, we call Judea and Samaria, according to history, it's Judea and Samaria, East Jerusalem and Gaza in 1967. In 1964, the whole of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza were in Arab hands. Jordan controlled the West Bank and Egypt controlled Gaza. So which Palestine did they want to liberate? They said in the charter, not the West Bank and Gaza, that should stay at the hands of Egypt and Jordan. But the core of Israel, Tel Aviv, West Jerusalem, Haifa, you know, the, the whole country of Israel, including the West Bank and Gaza, it's in the size of New Jersey. So uh, it's very, very small. And um, um, and, and, and and again, the PL, Yasser Arafat, that was, you know, the, you know, the biggest leader of the Palestinians were actually, was actually Egyptian that was born in Cairo. Right. And again, uh, they, 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 even their flag is identical to the Jordanian flag. They couldn't even be too creative with their flag, you know. Going back, so there's many layers. There's modern and, and ancient layers. Going back, like, where does the name Palestine came from? So the name Palestine, okay, if going back 2,000 years, at the time of the Roman Empire, what is the Holy Land, Israel and the whole surroundings, was officially a province of the Roman Empire called Province of Judea. Uh, that was the official name throughout, you know, any archaeological, um, you know, or historian can approve that. Uh, that was the official name of the province. There were many, like in the United States, there were states, there were many provinces in the Roman Empire, there were province of Italy, province of, of uh, Gaul, there was France, province of Brit Britain, et cetera, et cetera. And, Israel, and province of Judea was one of those provinces uh, with mostly inhabited by Jews as the name applied. It's also mentioned, you know, when you read the New Testament, it says again and again that Jesus was born and raised in Judea. That was the official name, Judea, the Galilee, that was, you know, the Northern province of the Judea. Uh, it was inhabited by Jews. Uh, now, Jews, the Jews rebelled against the Roman time and time again. Uh, 
And in 120 AD, there was a big revolt called Bar Kokhba revolt, when the Jews rebelled against uh, Emperor Hadrian, uh, the same guy that built the famous wall in England. And um, Hadrian was really upset because the Jews managed to manage to get to push out the Romans and get independence for one year. He brought all the legions throughout from throughout the empire to crush the revolt. And of course, the biggest superpower in the world managed to do that. They crushed the revolt. And they killed hundreds of thousands of Jews, took hundreds of thousands of Jews to slavery. And one of the punishments was to change the name of the province from province of Judea to province of Syria, Palestine. So where does the name Palestine come from? The name Palestine came from the ancient Philistines that the Romans knew them as the nemes ancient nemesis of the Israelites. Now, the Philistines had nothing to do with Arabs or Islam, of course. They were an ancient people coming from Greece to uh, um, invading to the Eastern Mediterranean around uh, 3,200 uh, years ago, uh, 3,200 years ago, 3,200 years ago. Uh, and the name Plishtim, Plishtim in Hebrew means invaders. This is how the ancient Israelites called them because they came from the sea, invaders. We don't know how they called themselves because they had no written language. Uh, and at the time of the Romans, 2000 years ago, they were already long extinct. They got uh, they, together with the 10 tribes of Israel at the time of the Assyrian uh, occupation and exile. They got exiled uh, throughout, you know, this empire at the, uh, around 2,600 years ago and disappeared from the pages of history. That means that at the time of the Romans, even, they were long gone 2,000 years ago. But they just named it in order to, you know, to make it more painful for the Jews, naming it under, uh, you know, the same name, their ancient nemesis. We also know for a fact that they were Greek people, the ancient Philistines, and have nothing to do with Arabs because we have their graves ancient graves throughout the coast of Israel. And when you extract the DNA from this coast, uh, from this, uh, from this, from this bones, you see that their DNA is Southern European and, and, and Greek. Um, so, but because the Romans changed the name to Palestine, it got stuck in European languages, like everything, like the ABC we use, the month of the year, everything from European languages and culture eventually comes from uh, the Roman Empire. So the name of the geographical area of the Holy Land, Holy Land was named Palestine, the same way you would call um, North America. It doesn't apply on any ethnicity or people living there. In fact, fast forwarding, you know, almost 2000 years to, um, modern time where Israel, when the Holy Land was under Turkish control, uh, the Turkish empire for 400 years, there was no Arab state or Muslims that with independence in the, you know, in the land of Palestine with the capital Jerusalem, never. It was always a part of other empires since the Jews lost their independence. And under the Turkish empire for 400 years, um, it was not even a province of its own. It was part of the Syrian province with the capital in Damascus. And you have American uh, and European uh, scientists and authors and, you know, that came to the Holy Land, in, for example, in the 19th century. And uh, for example, um, the famous American author, Mark Twain, visited the Holy Land in the 19th century and wrote a book about it. And he described an empty and desolate land with, you know, no people, almost no people. And he was not a Zionist. He was not a Jew. It was before Zionism. Uh, that was in the middle of the 19th century. Um, 
when it actually the only people that called themselves Palestinians were the Jews. Uh, Bank of Palestine was a Zionist uh, uh, bank. Um, you know, uh, the Jerusalem Palestine. Post was literally known as the Palestine Post. The Zionist Israeli newspaper was news, used to know as Palestine Post because when uh, when the British in the First World War, the British uh, was were in war with Turkey and they took over the Holy Land. And named the and and got gained control from the uh, League of Nations that pre pre preceded the, uh, the 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 UN. They get control of the Holy Land uh, in a form of mandate, meaning that they control the Holy Land, but for a temporary amount of time. And the mandate was called. They called it British Mandate of Palestine after the ancient Roman name. Uh, and the only people that called themselves, again, Palestinians were, were, were the Jews. The Arabs actually called themselves Southern Syrians or just Arabs. And um, while they got the, the, the in, from the League of Nations the mandate to Palestine, uh, they, you need to specify who are the natives that are supposed to inherit the land once they're, you know, because again, mandate is a form of having a colony, but for a temporary time, not forever. So you need to specify who is supposed to inherit the land, which kind of native is supposed to inherit the land. And it says specifically that the Jewish people are the only inheritance of the British Mandate of Palestine. It says it, it's an, it, it was agreed in the San Remo Agreement of the end of World War I. 1920, I think. 1920, exactly. It was uh, the 1920 uh, San Remo uh, Accords where like all the winning powers of World War I came together and split the Middle East and Europe uh, again after the war. The Turkish Empire, which is, was already Turkey, ceded the Holy Land to the British government. So Britain was legally in control of the Holy Land. And in, in the British Mandate of Palestine, they uh, adopted the Balfour Declaration calling for a Jewish independent state in the Holy Land, in, uh, the, in the land of Israel, in Israel. And it was later ratified in the British Parliament, becoming part of British law, in the US Congress, becoming part of American law. And all the League of Nations mandates when the UN was cre created after the Second World War was automatically adopted. So it's actually part of the UN Charter, believe it or not. You know, quite ironic, <laughs> you know, based on the UN, you know, behavior. Right. Uh, so this is binding international law and, and uh, it's including all of the West Bank, Israel, and uh, the Gaza Strip. Uh, and the status never changed. When Israel was created in 1948, it was declared, all the Arab countries surrounding Israel declared war and invaded Israel. And the Jordanian army crossed the Jordan River and managed to occupy what they call the West Bank, because they come from the East Bank of the Jordan uh, of the Jordan River. And the Egyptian army invaded and managed to occupy the Gaza Strip. So the new line between Israel and the West Bank and Gaza was only a ceasefire line with no legal uh with no legal basis it was only where the forces stopped fighting you know ceasefire line actually at the end of the 1948 independence war of israel israel approached jordan and egypt asking to let's you know let's make the new ceasefire line of international recognized border and they refused because they didn't recognize israel as a country or that has the right to exist so it was never became a part of international law in 1967 when israel was attacked and defended itself and took control of the West Bank, East Jerusalem, and Gaza, it actually brought back to its territory what its 
what it, it belongs to its territory according to international law, according to the San Remo Accords and the British Mandate of Palestine in the Balfour Declaration. Um, and, um, you know, so that's like yeah, yeah. A, a, a it's actually I, 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 that, that's an extremely helpful history lesson. Obviously, I, I think it's actually probably it's an even stronger case than what you're saying. Actually, believe it or not, so there's an, there's a, there's a not to nerd out, but we'll nerd out a little bit here. There, there's a principle of international law called uti posadidis juris, which basically says that when a new legal entity, a new sovereign entity, is created, that entity then inherits the borders of the previous entity that existed there. So at the time that David Ben-Gurion declares independence, 1948, Harry Truman, the president, recognizes it within 10 to 15 minutes or so. At that time, the then new and nascent state of Israel inherited the borders of mandatory Palestine, which included all of Judea and Samaria, included all of what the international community refers to today as the so-called West Bank. Yeah, yeah, we'd love to talk to you for so much longer, but unfortunately, we're starting to run out of time here. But let's let's go out on this note. I just want to finish with you. First of all, it's true, and the, the basis of the this international uh, law, you know, uh, um, uh, thing that you said, it's also the basis of the sovereignty of most African, Eastern European, and Asian country post-colonialism. So, you know, that's why you got yep. the borders you got throughout the world in most countries. So that's also very powerful, and also. You know, digging the West Bank, it's the hillside 10 miles east to Tel Aviv. And everywhere you dig there, you find Jewish archaeological, you know, uh, findings from, you know, 2,000 years ago, 3,000 years ago. In the Palestinian Authority, the most common last name is Al-Masri, which means Egyptian in wow. Arabic, because they're origin from Egypt. The second most common name is Hijazi, which is an area of Saudi Arabia. The third most common last name is Khalabi, which is Aleppo in Syria. Right. Most of the Arabs living either in Israel or in the West Bank and Gaza are descended, not all of them, but most of them are descendants of immigrants that came from neighboring Arab countries at the time of the Turkish Empire and the British Mandate. So with with all that said, and and, and this is all correct. I mean, this history is emphatically correct. It, it, it seems like the West just, just does not care. I mean, it seems like most people are either willfully naive or just flat out ignorant. They just don't seem to care about that. And, and I guess having acknowledged that, having acknowledged that most of the mainstream media, most of the Western elites at places like the United Nations, the New York Times, the European Union, all the above, they just don't care tragically about this authentic real history that you and I have just discussed. What what would be your 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 message then to those who just continue, despite all of what we just said, to push for this creation of an independent so-called Palestinian state? So again, the Palestinians are Arab Muslims. The Arab Muslims have 22 countries. Muslims have 50 countries. If you take the land mass of the Middle East, Israel, including the West Bank, it's not even zero point something percent. Um, so it's not like the Arabs, you know, if you ask the Palestinian, what is the difference between you and a Jordanian? What, you know, they even have the same flag, you know. Well, it's, you know, they speak the same language. They have the same families, their cousins, their, you know, it's all, you know, Israel cannot survive with a Palestinian state. The, the distance from Tel Aviv, which is our biggest metropolitan area, or New York, to the West Bank is 10 miles. And the 7th of October, the terrorists from Hamas invaded from the Gaza Strip to Israel and penetrated more than 20 miles inside Israel. If they would do the same from the West Bank, Israel would be annihilated at the same day. If 
the West Bank was not under Israeli control. Now, let's go back with the example of Gaza. Gaza was under Israeli control. And there were 10,000 Jewish Israeli civilians living there. In 2005, Israel evacuated, pulled out from unilaterally from the Gaza Strip. Israel, we took, we kicked out 10,000 Israelis from their homes, from, you know, they were born in their homes, their parents were born in them for several generations, they had farms there. They, they, they lost their lands, they lost their farms. We kicked out all, you know, everybody, the, the, the whole families together with kids, even the graveyards. We took the bodies out of the graveyard so we didn't even leave the graveyard. And we left the Palestinians there, all the greenhouses and all the facilities and everything. And we said, here, you want a state? Take a state. Gaza will be, you know, you want to say Gaza will be your state. We pulling out, all the army went out and billions of dollars of, humanitarian aid so flooded Gaza from around the world. Actually, more money Gaza received since 2005 than Germany and Japan received after the Second World War. Wow. And poor Germany and Japan, and look where is Gaza now. And, you know, we, you know the liberals in Israel said that, you know, wish, wishful thinking that God, once we pull out of Gaza, it will become the Singapore of the Middle East. It's a beautiful stretch of coast along the Mediterranean, you know, they will bring, build hotels there and, you know, luxury resorts and stuff. My father was one of the few that actually warned that now, like Hamas will take over probably. And it's, you know, they're going to use it as a launch pad to Israel. And since 2005, Israel, the whole of Israel, including our heartland, our metropolitan of our capital of Jerusalem and our metropolitan of Tel Aviv, that is 80 miles from the Gaza, unlike 10 miles from the West Bank, being bombarded in missiles, you know, this yep. is the only country in the world that once in half a year or so, the whole country goes in bomb shelters for a few days when there's a skirmish with Gaza. And of course, Hamas and the Palestinians in Gaza are committing a double war crime because they're targeting Israeli civilians. They're not firing on Israeli military bases. They're firing their rockets on Israeli towns and cities. And they're firing those missiles from within civilian Palestinian population, from within schools, from within mosques and hospitals, hoping that Israel will retaliate. And then, so they're hoping for the biggest amount of Israeli and Palestinian civilian casualties. And, uh, and you know, and I hope this war will be the last war with Gaza and, you know, for the sake of the Palestinians as well. God willing, it will be. I mean, as you just said, they basically have had their experiment in an independent state since 2005 in Gaza. And suffice, suffice to say, it has not ended particularly well. Yair Netanyahu, God bless you, my friend. I hope you stay strong throughout the, the months that are ahead. Thank you so much for joining the Josh Hammer Show. Thank you, Josh. Thank you. Anthony Blinken, the U.S. Secretary of State, and the Biden administration are pushing real hard at this point to leak to the media that they have every intention in the world of forming an independent so-called Palestinian state after the conflict in Gaza is wrapped up. They are doing this for one reason and one reason only. That is to undermine and to hamstring a country that once upon a time was viewed as one of America's most important, most strategic, and indeed indispensable allies, that would be the state of Israel. And to make it even more cynical than that, the reason that the Biden administration is going down this road has nothing to do whatsoever 
with justice, with questions of right and wrong. It has nothing to do, furthermore, with foreign policy at all. It exclusively has to do with domestic political concerns. Have no doubt about it. They are threatening to create, for the first time in the history of American foreign policy, an independent so-called Palestinian state simply trying to win the Arab and Muslim vote in Michigan and Minneapolis, in Ilhan Omar's district there in Minneapolis and Rashida Tlaib's district in Michigan. That is literally exactly what is going on here. They are playing with absolute fire in doing so. What kind of incentive, what kind of message does it send to our allies that this is what the United States will do to those who commit October 7th style atrocities, who put babies in ovens, who butcher up Holocaust survivors. What, what does that say to our allies? It, it's just disgusting stuff. There, there, there increasingly is no other way to describe the way that the Biden administration is talking and acting here without using such adjectives as disgusting, because that's exactly what it is. But you didn't hear it just from me there. You heard it again from Yair Netanyahu, the son of the prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. Israel is a small country, folks. It's a small country that punches way above its weight when it comes to how much the U.S. relies on it for defense, for intelligence sharing. We are fighting the same enemies as these guys. We're all fighting the Iranian regime via their numerous proxies. You have to care about this conflict whether you want to care or not. I agree. I much rather focus on the domestic issues as well. But this conflict's here. And if you're not caring about it, you are doing a disservice to yourself. The Josh Hammer Show.